Hi, I'm David Liu uh, from Melbourne, Australia, and I'm reporting here for Room Now. Like all my four panelists here, and today, this is a Room Now daily recap from ACR Convergence 2023. Thank you for all your support and dialing in to all of our um, coverage that we've been putting out uh, this meeting. As always, ACI is a massive meeting. No one person can cover it all, but with the with the, the breadth of people that we do have, we hope we give you some of the best bits. So I'm going to, even though you probably know them all, I'm going to go around the virtual room and get everyone to introduce themselves, um, tell, the, tell us where they're from, and, uh, and then we'll get started. Aurelie. Hi, everyone. Hi, David. Um, I am Aurelie Nash. I'm from Glasgow. Super excited to be here with you guys. Always excited to have you here. Anthony. Hello, I'm Anthony Chan. I'm from Reading, uh, United Kingdom. Glad to be here. And very glad to have you. And Bella, last but not least. Hi, I'm Bella Mehta. I'm from New York, but now right now in San Diego, uh, reporting for uh, the convention. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the weather's been lovely here, San Diego. Best weather in the US, in the world, maybe. Who knows? Um, and it's, we've, it's a really lovely conference centre. Um, really lovely to have the poster floor back in person. Uh, beating hard of the conference. Maybe let's go through a, a few different abstracts. Let's get kicked off in some of that um, because there has been some really interesting stuff. Uh, Bella, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you found interesting today on the Tuesday, day three of the main program, telling me a bit about being excited about osteoarthritis. Did I hear that right? Yeah. Yes, I think I scouted a bunch of osteoarthritis talks and abstracts today. Um, uh, one of the things that caught my eye was the Roy Altman RF Memorial Lecture. And again, this is sort of dedicated to one of the rheumatology giants who passed away, but um, also highlighting the work and where is osteoarthritis going. Um, so um, sort of, uh, you know, we're still using the guidelines that he created for defining knee osteoarthritis, the 1986, 1987 um, osteoarthritis criteria. And, um, I think what I, I, you know, there's a lot of like hopelessness sometimes in osteoarthritis saying patients come in with pain and function disability and what do we do with these patients? Um, I think, um, you know, in terms of drugs, uh, they talked about a lot of like pre, um, you know, trials with IL-1, um, the CANTOS trial, um, and the LODO-CO trial, which is the colchicine trial. And again, the, most of these trials were done um, in, uh, in the population sort of looking at cardiovascular risks. And now we, um, as rheumatologists, are doing post-hoc analysis, uh, looking if this medication, uh, either IL-1 agents or colchicine works in OA. I think the medications don't work that well. Um, what uh, Tuhina Niyogi highlighted in the lecture while she was doing this was that we need uh, longer trial durations. Uh, we need uh, to sort of um, work on this and like give uh, give whatever uh, treatment we want uh, slightly early on uh, because once the joint is totally damaged, it's very difficult to uh, so eff show efficacy with any of the medications. Um, with that... Um, I think that we still need to highlight and the hopefulness in osteoarthritis is things like um, uh, weight loss, exercise, um, 
they do work. They work brilliantly. There was a lot of data shown in this meeting that it works. Um, and we need to encourage patients to do so. Uh, and even simple things like it doesn't need to be fancy um, modalities, just simple walking, quad strengthening, uh, healthy diet, weight loss, those sort of things. Well, I remember being told as a trainee by Flavio Cicchettini uh, that whoever invents a therapy for osteoarthritis will get their own private jet, and I suspect that's still true. Um, really interesting to see these study design issues, and a lot COVID's obviously um, truncated a few of the studies, where, which we'd like to have seen longer-term da data. I think we have the same issue in a number of diseases, like scleroderma and Sjogren's, where we want to try and get these patients earlier than we do. We end up seeing patients with a bit of damage. So, Bella, let me ask you first, what do you think in amongst that? Where are the promising therapies? Who are the most promising therapies in amongst that? And, and are there efforts that are, are being put in place to try and get these patients earlier? Are we phenotyping these patients, for example? Yeah, so so I think, you know, I think RC is trying to define early osteoarthritis. Like, I think that's step one. Like, I think they've put out the first few papers sort of scouting and defining that. Uh, only once you define them, can you enroll them? So there's a lot more work that needs to be done. In terms of therapeutics, like, you know, wind pathways, there's like a bunch of new therapeutics, but they are not um, in, uh, as I say, like in game time right now. It's They're still sort of... Um, in early phases and we have to see, but there, there's some, some of them are, are promising. Uh, we will need to see the data coming up in the upcoming ACRs. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned a little bit about these ideas of trying to modulate IL-1 and I guess culture scenes along those lines. Um, have we given up on that or is that something that we're still trying to pursue? I mean, those there are obviously therapies. I, in that place. I, mm -hmm. I think that OA is such a heterogeneous disease mm. that I, I don't think that one agent like a TNF for RA is ever going to work for OA. And that's what um, all of these trials are telling us. Um, I, I don't think that IL-1 is completely given up, but I think um, going upstream, phenotyping patients and finding subclasses is what is needed so that we can treat these patients. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, obviously, um, beyond the, just the involved joint and knee osteoarthritis is not the same as hip, which is not the same as hand, which is not the same as, and even hand, we're starting to see different phenotypes, but clearly trying to identify inflammatory um, uh, phenotypes within those is is another challenge. I mean, Anthony, Orly, um, what do you think are going to be the, have you got any thoughts on what the best bets are? How am I going to get my private jet? Probably not. Yeah. Really, let's be real. <laughs> I think the issue here is about the assessment. Uh, obviously, the treatment response will be very much dependent on mm. uh, structural changes, but equally on pain as well. And I think we had in the past uh, looked at targets such as nerve growth factor, uh, where it might affect uh, the pain levels. I think it's a bit more complex, uh, osteoarthritis, than being just pure inflammatory target, for example. There are there will be structural and neural uh, pathways that we probably haven't fully dissected yet. So uh, to get my private jet, I think um, there'll be a couple more layers to get through before I get to fly it. Yes, and our tenizumab friends, the anti-nerve uh, anti nerve growth factor and friends probably thought they were going to get their private jet. Uh, doesn't look like that's the case anymore. 
so I guess there are lots of traps along the way. I mean, do you think it's a kind of thing where we might go back and look at some of these, Anthony, do you think we might look at some of these therapies that we've kind of discarded and, and go back again? I guess that's what methotrexate, the, the, the redo there has been about trying to select, um, you know, the, the patients with hand osteoarthritis with synovitis on MRI. Are there other therapies we might go back and have a look at? I certainly think so. I think as you clearly uh, pointed out, David, this is quite heterogeneous both in terms of regional differences, say hand versus hip, but also within that different subsets or subtypes. And also we got the phase of early versus late. So I think we'll probably have to dissect it using some molecular or genetic uh, tool in order to uh, and, you know, analyze this a bit more. Yeah, well, now we're getting cracking in those. Um, I think the technology is clearly becoming more accessible. So that's uh, promising. Orly, any other thoughts on that? Any other, if you're going to bet on one of those therapies? Yeah, I mean, you know what I would really love? Uh, and it's not even a therapy. It's, you know, I would really love for us to give the same amount of effort that we give in trying to characterize RA. You know, we've been looking in the tissue. We've been doing single cell um, analysis. We've been doing spatial transcriptomics. We do that in many different conditions. I haven't seen that in a way yet. And I'm pretty sure there's a lot to discover with these approaches as well. And that would help us uh, dig further into, you know, the phenotypes and then stratify people. And once we do that, I'm pretty sure we can go back and see what drugs work in which patient subgroups. I so agree. I think, uh, you know, even though as rheumatologists, I feel like majority of our patients, uh, whether we want it or not, come in with osteoarthritis pain and we've sort of ignored it uh, for a very long time. Um, I think the NIH, I mean, uh, we're part of the Rejoin Consortium. They're trying to get these sort of uh, detailed phenotyping and genotyping done for osteoarthritis. So, but it's still in the nascent phases, not as much as RA. So we're getting there. I mean, orally, you're a big synovial tissue transcriptomics uh, person. So you're putting your hand up. You want to be contacted by some of the osteoarthritis people? Yes, that's a hand I didn't up. Touch. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you've, you've heard it there. So you know how to get on to her. Um, so orally, why don't we talk about something beyond osteoarthritis? Let's go. Let's move along. Uh, I guess another back to the future type thing, tapering. Shall we talk about DMARD tapering? Yes, absolutely. I think there were like um, two really interesting results. One was abstract 2543, and that was the DMARD, kind of the conventional synthetic DMARD branch of the um, Arctic Rewind study. So just a reminder for those who are not familiar with it, um, there had been data published already after one year in the JAMA a couple of years ago. So it's a randomized controlled trial where they take patients that have been in remission uh, drug-induced remission for over a year with rheumatoid arthritis, and they just um, randomize them. With either they keep the same dose of their um, conventional synthetic DMARDs, or they go health dose, or they go health dose for a year and then withdraw. And then the follow-up was at three years. Um, and they did the same thing with TNF, and that was another abstract. Um, but I think overall, what's really kind of cool with that is there's there's a lot to discuss right the there was 150 patients um 140 roughly completed the study and so the first thing that's really important is that 80 percent of those who remained unstable those were still in remission after three years and didn't experience any flares um 57 of those that had that had the half dose were still in remission and then um 38 percent of those who withdrew 
were uh, instilled in remission. And so you can see it half full of half empty, right? You can say, oh my God, it's terrible. Uh, it's only, you know, a very small amount of people. Or you can say, wow, 40% were in drug-free remission. And who are these people? And what are their characteristics? Because we don't know that yet. Um, but 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 as per the, the trial, the non-inferiority criteria was not met. Um, the good thing, though, about those who did flare is that the recovery rate was 75%. Um, but that also poses a question, which is, who is this quarter of people who actually, you know, stop the drug and do not recover? Um, and it's particularly important for conventional static DMARDs. Um, and then one of the important results as well, uh, to my opinion, was the radiographic progression. So 1% of those that were in a stable dose did progress over three years, which is very low. Um, and then 19% of those that had the half dose progressed. So it's quite, you know, a lot. Um, but then those who did withdraw was only 11%. And I think the reason for that, it was because these patients' exposure to biologic was much higher um, as opposed to the half those guys who remained on the same kind of drug. And so um, those who withdrew were exposed to um, biologics in 18% as opposed to 9% in the stable dose. Um, and so I think what is, and, and in terms of safety, there was no major um, difference. And so what this is telling us is that, yes, there is a group of people you can you know safely withdraw, but you don't know who they are. <laughs> and um, and there's a group of people you certainly don't want to withdraw because if you do, they're going to flare and they're not going to recover when you start them again on treatment. And this was fairly similar for the TNF. The TNF was the latest abstract number seven. Um, and so same thing with TNF inhibitors. Either they withdraw after four months of tapering or they just remain. And then the numbers for remission were... Um, we were roughly in the 80% range again versus 25%. Um, and so in that circumstance, and, and the recovery was okay as well, but you know, it's, it, there's a big difference there. Um, so yeah, I think that that for me was quite, you know, important in terms of, do I really want to offer tapering to my patients? Um, considering I don't know, you know, who's going to do what, what is going to be the trajectory at the individual level. So we need biomarkers. Tissue is the answer. I'll tell Tissue you. Tissue is the answer. That's the second time you said that tonight already. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think that's a really the the second bit's a really good reminder that uh, we'd never want to get complacent that where we've come from in rheumatoid arthritis, and uh, not that long ago we used to have clinics full full of patients with um, destroyed <clears> joints <throat> everywhere. And I think that we we don't want to forget about the radiographic damage that we potentially risk that DMARDs um, protect us against. Uh, by definition. So look, I think that um, that's really fascinating that there's such a high rate of radiographic progression in that half dose, um, in that half dose. And that's not kind of thing you also don't see from the shorter follow-up from tapering studies. Did that surprise you? And I guess how much, how significant is this radiographic uh, progression orally? I mean, are we talking about, you know, one, one sharp band of high score, um, you know, delta, or are we talking big differences? Yeah, no, it was it was three. 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 It's superior or equal to three. So again, yeah, it's it's you know, but I'm just because there is obviously the you know observer, you know, and uh, an intrapersonal. But I think I think what would be really good would be to see, you know, if that was increasing over the three years. Yes. 
you know, and, and if the, what the data was, because those who start progressing and then it's three and then it's six and then it's nine, these guys are, are definitely progressing. And we don't know what the percentage of these people was. Uh, so it's hard to answer, but um, yeah. I guess it's interesting because we've got a lot of inter-individual pharmacokinetic variability in with TNF inhibitors as well. We've seen the therapeutic drug monitoring studies where people scatter out. So you'd imagine that weaning, you'd really kind of bring people back down the curve and accentuate some of those differences. Um, so do we think that maybe there's probably better ways of trying to deal with that side of things as well, orally? I mean, the if we're going to reduce, should we be trying to do it on drug levels or something like that? Yeah, I mean, are you talking about finding this group of people that actually is not going to flare? Is that what we're talking about? Well, I mean, I think there are a lot of patients would like to reduce their doses, even when we try and hide that idea from them. And um, maybe we would like to reduce down exposure. Um, maybe people would like just to take fewer meds if they could get away with it. So, um, you know, I, I don't know if, if uh, Anthony, Bella, you've got thoughts on on this and, and I guess this idea as well, like Orly brings up of how are we going to start picking the winners here in terms of, of tapering? I think it boils down to risk prediction, right? Like our prediction probabilities uh, yeah. and subtyping. Like this is again, going to the same theme, uh, I guess, saying if you could know that these are the group of patients which will do okay, you would stop, you know, you'll start withdrawing therapy. Nobody wants to keep patients on therapy when they don't need it. But I'm curious, like when you say, tissue is the key but we still even if we go on biopsying these patients today we don't have the answer like i mean we just know that they are not flaring right now who i don't know what the future holds does it yeah i mean there's been a study that's been published um it was in it was a nature medicine paper that was you know looking at what differentiates those guys that are going to flare and those that are not and so there was this specific, I mean, you would have to do single cell at the moment and you don't, you can't do that at the, you know, at the mass level, right, obviously, but if you were able to find, so there was this cluster of, of, of cells, right, of macrophages, tissue resistant macrophages that, you know, they were present in those people that were flaring and they were not in those that weren't. So there is this cell kind of subset that's there and that is driving this. So if you find a way to correlate that in some kind of blood, you know, biomarker, then, you know, there you go. <laughs> we haven't done that, but... Then then you fly a jet. <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll never tell orally that all synovitis is the same. Don't ever tell her, don't ever, ever suggest that to her. Anthony, you got any thoughts on how we're going to pick the, or how we might pick the winners if we are going to have to taper? And uh, I know that Jack, if we, was he, if Jack was here, he'd tell us that this is all ridiculous and we shouldn't be bothering with tapering studies. But let's say we are tapering. Who, how are we going to pick the winners? Yeah, I think uh, you know all the points that were raised. If we could have a better predictive tool as to who is suitable and who is not, but if you look at this um, this study, the Arctic Rewind, we are faced with two groups. One group who who carried on with TNF, the stable group, they did very well. And then you got a group who, when you tapered and stopped, they didn't do so well. So my reading of this is that you probably should do something in between. Rather than stop, you should dose optimize them mm -hmm. to the dose where it's best for them. And so I think it was quite a, quite a quick drop here. I think they had four months of half dose in the biologic arm and then stopped. Yeah. Now that to me is quite a drastic um, drop. Maybe they wanted to prove the point. But I would say, you know, and there are many other studies and, and the studies will be very much, the results on the studies will be very much 
dependent on how you taper. Mm -hmm. So we know that from previous studies where they did say 66, 33% or 60, 50, 33, and then kind of stopped there uh, when they felt that they were, you know, the disease was going up a bit, but not enough to uh, be a flare and then left it at that. Probably something in between the two um, would be my, my way of seeing this until such time when we got very good predictive tools, be it biomarkers or synovial tissue, we probably shouldn't risk uh, our patients having a flare. Absolutely. I mean, we've got so many levers now um, that we don't have to blindly try and reduce down these meds. But I suspect that when I go back to clinic next week, that I'll have patients who have still reduced down their meds without even telling me. So such is the way of life. We will keep on trying to do something better. Speaking of which, I think, Anthony, you, you want to talk about a, ja a JAK1 inhibitor. Why do we need another JAK1 inhibitor? Why do yes. we need another one? So, uh, you know, we, when the JAKs came out, we, we called them just another kinase. Um, so here we are, just another me too. Another <laughs> one today. Uh, an L, L, late-breaking abstract L09. And the compound is called LNK01001. I'm sure I'll get a name very soon. A selective JAK1 inhibitor. So we know we already have selective JAK1. So why why is this so important? Why am I highlighting here? It's because the uh, firstly the um, the rapid onset of this within one week, eighteen percent of people in the study had ACR twenty and twenty three percent had ACR fifty, and then at twelve weeks that went up to sixty percent uh, for ACR twenty. But remarkably, at twenty four weeks, ninety one percent had ACR twenty. Uh, obviously, the placebo arm finished at 12, so there'll be a crossover. But even then, that is quite a significant improvement, uh, which is great news for us. But then it calls into question, are all these jacks the same? Do they operate in different concentrations? If you go from 12 to 24, do you inhibit another jack? Maybe you got a bit of jack too. We don't know the exact uh, pharmacokinetics of this. But the dosing at 24 uh, got you a very high um, ACR 70, uh, 23%, um, for 42% for 50 and 23% for 70 uh, within 12 weeks. So, um, and, you know, I think it's something that we should just keep an eye. It's early days, is only 24 weeks. It'll be interesting to see the longer term data. So, I mean, if we're talking 60, 40, 20, and we used to live by the 60, 40, 20 rule, 90 is a lot higher than 60. Yeah. You should never compare. These are not comparative effectiveness studies. This is an early phase study. So um, do you think, Andy, that this is plausible? Do you think that, how can, do you think that this makes sense if we've just got two things which are nominally acting on the same pathway? Maybe we're not, maybe these aren't quite as exact as we pretend they are, but um, does it make sense? Oh, and do you believe it? And I guess the other question that comes about, uh, some people ask the question, are, um, What's the clinical trials uh, infrastructure in China? Are we seeing similar types of things? There have been some questions about that this week. Um, mm. Yeah, what do you think about that all? I think, uh, like I say, I think early days, uh, and I think we want to see certainly 52-week uh, data, which I hope they will present um, probably at the next meeting. Um, but, I, but there seem to be a concentration gradient here. So I wonder how selective uh, it is for Jack one as you go up from 12 to 24 milligrams. We know that from other studies, as the concentration goes up, it becomes less selective in some of the jacks. Whether we are seeing such an effect, um, I think time will tell. Mm. 
I mean, um, there was obviously there was some uh, data represent well, not represented, but there was um, further data presented for TLL zero one eight earlier in the meeting. Uh, I think we've already talked a bit. We've covered a bit of that on room now. That's the Jack one tick two dual inhibitor um, also from China um, that has some was went in a head to head fate in a face to way against tofacitinib and absolutely smashed tofacitinib. Um, and uh, Roy Fleischman said that this is a spectacular compound, unbelievably spectacular. Um, and so I think, and the uh, speaker did mention that, in fact, they're pursuing a ch Chinese registration first and not going to go with a multinational US, uh, well, multinational trials that may well um, initially lead to registration in the US. Um, do we think that we can keep on doing, maybe I can ask Aurelie and Bella, do you think we can keep on going, doing better with Jack inhibitors? Or have we reached the, the, the ceiling of where we're going? I mean, I, I, that sounds a bit existential, but I guess the question is, should we be looking to try and continue to improve um, our Jack inhibitor armamentarium, knowing that uh, we've possibly had our enthusiasm dampened a little bit by all surveillance? It's it's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, I don't <laughs> because, ask easy questions. Yeah, <laughs> because you know it's not only the efficacy; it's also you know uh, the tolerance and the safety. And and you know there's been a lot of discussions about you know how selectivity affects tolerance. And you know we also know that selectivity is quite relative if you think of it. Mm. Um, it's it's an in vitro thing, not necessarily an in vivo thing, right? Um, and so and so I don't know. I think this compound, if it's true then my answer would be yes let's go ahead let's do dual inhibition let's you know um but i would like to see that replicated somewhere else uh or you know i would like to i don't know i just it just sounds too good to be true i guess i'm a skeptic too i feel like there'll be some horrible side effect which we've not seen in this data and like i don't know it just makes me nervous Oh, you're such a nihilist, Bella. You know, I have some optimism <laughs> in life. <laughs> no, I mean, I think that um, clearly we uh, want to look for, for uh, good therapies wherever they come from and that the infrastructure in China, the clinical trials infrastructure in China has improved a, a lot in recent years. Um, but understandably, you know, we um, outside of China want to have a good, uh, if there's something good there, we want to be able to test it and have a good use of it in our country. We want to have it registered for us. Um, so I think that's, I think, part of where that, that comes from. Um, I guess, uh, um, what do we think about in, in terms of some of these dual inhibition uh, approaches that we're starting to see? Um, I guess TIC2 inhibitors are quite um, considered to be quite safe generally. So, yeah, what do we think about um, adding that to, to JAK inhibition as well? Any takers? Yeah, I think, I think that's uh, probably the... Um... The kind of question is it as we maximize on the jacks whether we could go further with tick inhibition as well so far from what i can see it seems to be fairly safe um but you know like i say many of these things we need to take it out for longer to see what the impact is absolutely all right well the one thing i did want to talk about um from my um expedition today was another one on the late breaking which was on dazzle and Dazadalabep, uh, the CD, nearly, nearly didn't get that, the CD4 ligand inhibitor we, um, for Sjogren's disease. We saw dual abstracts for that at Yola, um this year. We saw, we saw, in fact, 
on the late breaking poster floor uh, further six months from the study, which looked not at the Sjogren's disease with all the terrible organ manifestations, but more, well, not from that point of view, but from the point of view of the symptoms that bother patients. And I think that we all feel very vulnerable uh, with how well we can treat sicker symptoms and um, really clearly does impact patients' quality of life substantially. And we, we, we seem to have nothing that can actually, uh, well, we seem to struggle to find things that can modify that in, that the immune processes that sit behind that. So I think that's where the need comes from. We saw at Eula these data looking at the CD4 ligand inhibitor um, with some really lovely um, results over the first six months. What they did in the next six months, they did a crossover trial. So the patients who'd been on active drug for the first six months went on to placebo and the patients who went who on placebo went on to active drug. And what we saw really interestingly were that the placebo, the patients who had um, been on active drug and crossed over to placebo had a sustained response as far as their um, ESPRI is concerned. So the patient reported um, component of in terms of the symptoms, which I think is really enormously pleasing, this idea that maybe um, we would have sustained benefit. And then we saw the patients who crossed over to active drug um, catch up as well. So, I mean, this is a phase two still. We'd love to see the phase three. We've got excited previously by phase twos in, in Sjogren's, uh, probably too excited and because we're desperate and, you know, desperate people get excited over some things. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to see phase three. I'm, I think it's in the, in the pipeline. Any other thoughts from the group on, on, on that CD4 ligand on does it a little bit? Yeah, I think with these uh, studies, um, the patient selection is quite important, uh, certainly for conditions like Sjogren's. You probably have to get people with uh, lots of antibodies and lots of immunoglobulins and positive for lots of things uh, for this uh, probably to be more effective or to show the benefit than to have maybe uh, antibody negative uh, type patients. That will be my prediction at this stage. Well, we're in a personalized uh, therapeutic therapeutics mode tonight, aren't we? Uh, Zorali's influence. He's sitting there just looking at us. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's certainly, I think, and, and there's been a lot of work done in showgrounds in recent times to try and, and stratify. So I think that's probably key. I actually just will make a quick call out on another stratification uh, bit of data I saw today, uh, which was in the immune-related adverse events from Laura Capelli from Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. um, phenotyping in her cohort inflammatory arthritis and finding using latent class analysis. Um, so um, putting an element of um, uh, taking away that taking away that element of subjectivity and finding two different phenotypes, uh, one of which was more severe and may well be uh, useful in terms of targeting therapies when we're trying to balance out um, uh, trying to control an immune-related adverse event from checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapy versus uh, not overwhelm the checkpoint inhibitor immunotherapy. So lovely work there as well. Let's, um, we're getting up to the half hour. So let's just, um, I think it's always nice to reflect. This is another conference where we've had the post the hall back again, like we said, and we've had a few other changes. I think we're kind of getting to the expectation that this should be similar to how things were in 2019, but with all the added benefits of a virtual component, well, some virtual component as well. Let's go around the room and say what we really liked about um, this, this year's meeting and then what perhaps we hope might change for next year and, and hope and pray that the ACR listens to us. So, um, I might start with you, Bella. What what do you what did you like this year about the conference itself? And then what I think San Diego is great. I ah, think that's like the top thing. 
uh, this is a conference center was great. Uh, the posters definitely were the highlight. And I think, um, uh, you know, for the next year, though, uh, I wish there's much more um, sort of the app and the, you know, where to go when. Um, the app and the sort of uh, the website work a little better. Uh, and um, if there's food there, uh. I would love, like with the registration, we need to get like at least some food. Mm. Well, and you'll often have, you know, quite, you know, they have like, uh, you know, quite good food. I mean, there's, you know, paella and, you know, we had all sorts of beautiful pasta in Milan, lots of fruit out. Yeah, I'd I'd love to see that as well. Um, Anthony, tell tell me, what would you, uh, what do you like about this? What did you like about this year and what would you change? It's uh, great to have the uh, physical posters back. the networking and the interaction at the uh, the poster boards uh, were amazing, uh, and you will never get that with virtual posters. Um, a people won't won't often have a chance to look at them, uh, but this was just strolling down, and there was enough time as well. So I really like that they made some time for us to, and I really appreciate the people's hard work because a lot of these, especially the uh, the kind of basic science people who spend hours and hours, you know, producing that poster, deserve some recognition. <laughs> for people to come and talk to them and ask them about their research. I really like that. I think in previous years, the apps were better. I'm not quite sure how we reverted back to the app being less user-friendly this year because in previous years, they were a lot better. For example, it's only today I found out how to look at my actual schedule, um, which is scroll as far as possible to the right. Things like that, minor things, not nothing major, just little things. And yeah, I think it will be good too for them to have some packed lunch so that you can take it away and go to whichever session you like uh, and make that, make that part of the registration rather than having to pay, um, uh, you know, when you when you go for your lunch. Mm. Otherwise, San Diego is great and it's great to be back. I mean, I love that we are so happy. I mean, that we, we love the overall meeting so much that we get to, um, we get concerned about these things. But I think they, it's possible the ACR have had one or two bits of feedback about the app the app that people struggle to open. So um, I'm sure they're going to hear that loud and clear and that next year it will be better. Um, Orally, give you the final word. What did you love about this? Uh, I mean, you've obviously got the beautiful sunset uh, behind you. Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it does look like that outside, though, I have to say. It's a bit oh, yeah. darker now, but it did look like that, didn't it? Yeah, that's. I took it yesterday. And, you know, I was about to say, like, look at this. What is not to like? <laughs> about this about this view right um yeah no i've 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 really enjoyed it i think um from my perspective um the amount of science that was presented it was just massive there were so many abstract sessions running in parallel that was just impressive and the amount of posters um it was just a lot you know and and in a good way um you know you had no time to get to be bored at all and apparently they did only accept 50 percent of the, um, the 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 thing presented as posters which means that there were a lot of submissions as well and and i think it's just you know uh, i think the committee the scientific committee did a great job um you know i've quite happy the the app yeah didn't work they still still didn't manage to look at my schedule but um but you know i went back to the paper version and that was fine <laughs> absolutely i mean we find a way and you know the all, all the all the good people on the ampc on the program committee really 
work hard all year to bring us an excellent meeting and you just get you can really choose your own adventure there is so much great content i know that sound i say that every time and it sounds cliche but it really is this yeah. is it's reason why people come from around the world to this mm. well um so thank you so much the three of you for joining uh me today thank you bella anthony and orally um, as always i hope we see we'll see you all in either in Vienna for Yula 2024 or Washington, D.C. Um, for um, a week and a bit after the election in uh, next year as well um, at ACR, bigger and better with, a, with, um, with more and more content. So thank you so much. Have a good evening and enjoy the last half day of the uh, conference. Thank you. Thank you, thank everyone. You.